0: I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and now it is time for the Jack
1: Riccardi Show. Well, I want to announce, Christian, that uh, inspired by Major League Baseball, uh, we're going to institute a banter clock, <laughs> so <laughs> after the news, oh. you'll have eight seconds. No, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Can boy, I be the boy, designated people... talker? <laughs> It's interesting to me how yesterday nobody liked that idea. Nobody. I mean, like, there, there were people that love baseball, people that hate baseball, people that watch baseball, people that never watch baseball, but it sort, of, it sort of just struck everybody the wrong way, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yep. I, I, think, I think it speaks to a larger issue, which is maybe not everything in our life needs to be done as quickly as possible. Maybe, maybe speed is not always a virtue.
0: I'm glad you said you took the words right. Out of my mouth. Remember the Heinz ketchup. You remember the Heinz ketchup commercial? Yes. Wait for the ketchup. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And but but you know what's funny about that? It's funny you say that because I was just thinking about that the other day Mm because I saw a picture of the old glass bottle of ketchup. Now that Mm -hmm. was a commercial where a person is waiting for the glass bottle of ketchup to ooze out some ketchup. I haven't had a glass bottle of ketchup in like twenty something years. They're all those plastic squeeze bottles where you get it immediately. Mm-hmm. So, see. Yeah, and I'd be. We can't even wait for ketchup anymore.
0: Well, I'll admit at restaurants, what I started doing back when you had the glass bottle, like we're talking about. Yeah. The air would trap that ketchup in there, yeah. and by nine, ten years old, I yeah. was sticking a knife in there to, you know, get out. There it you go. Out. You so, were the one.
1: Yep. <laughs> you were the one making everybody sick. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, welcome to our dreadful little show. And as you just heard, yeah, it's ridiculously warm and summery out. It's really amazing, uh beautiful weather. And I hope you're having a great day. And we've got a lot to get into here. Um, as you probably know, one of the big uh headlines today is the Supreme Court is hearing arguments for and against uh President Biden's student loan forgiveness program, which is such a Orwellian word, forgiveness. Like you know, I mean, it's it's a giveaway. It's a payout not forgiveness it's not like he you know blesses you with holy water and you go do penance but you know um i want to expand this out a little bit because i know that and we're going to talk to our constitutional law uh expert here in about 20 minutes but i i know that whenever we've talked about it most people who listen to our our show don't like it some people do and their principal argument for liking it is that college is, is insanely expensive and who wouldn't be in trouble trying to pay for it? But anyway, um, I want to expand it out a little bit. So the the issue at hand is can the president, does the president have the constitutional authority or not to do this program? And is the law that, he, that he's citing called the HEROES Act, is is it is it statutorily broad enough to cover what he's doing and we'll see what professor piatt says and of course ultimately we'll see what the supreme court says but but i want to i want to broaden this out a little bit i was driving a couple of mornings ago and i saw a billboard and i don't know what it was for because i only read part of it before i was past it but it was over on wetmore i think and, and it was a billboard that said dad lost his job big letters dad lost his job and now we live in the car And I started thinking about all the stories we're seeing lately about debt. Now, there's a a story in the Wall Street Journal that says millennials, the millennial age group right now is racking up debt faster than any other age group in America and faster than any age group has ever racked up debt. It is an all-time record. In the fourth quarter of, of the year, their credit card balances uh, hit 3.8 trillion. It's the fastest growth of any age group. It's the fastest pace of debt accumulation that we've seen in modern times. Younger people are falling behind on everything. And these are not just falling behind because they took a vacation. These are people falling behind on car notes and mortgages and rent and medical and groceries there is an increasing phenomenon according to the credit card companies and and credit reporting firms more and more americans are putting more and more things on credit cards that you normally don't put on a credit card like groceries or a doctor bill or a car repair bill now why would you do that well if before you were paying that with a check or a debit card but you're out of money you're running out of paycheck before you run out of month, then you're having to do it on your credit card. More and more people are doing that. I'm not going to judge. You shouldn't judge. No one should judge. There, there may be people that are just spendthrift, but there, I'm sure there are also people that are doing it right and cannot keep up. So we're piling on the debt. We're seeing ominous signs in the economy. There's a company that just announced it's going out of business this week called American Car Center. And this is a subprime auto loan company. So this is a company that loans money to people uh, for subprime auto loans. They are laying off 700 people and closing immediately. They're hemorrhaging money. And I could give you several more examples of an economy that is in really serious trouble. The politicians like to talk about the top-line stuff like the unemployment rate or the stock market, but here's the bottom line. People are hurting. People are broke. People are worried. People who do everything right, people that have never charged stuff on their credit cards are having to charge stuff on their credit cards. And what I worry about is not what the Supreme Court is going to do with the student loan plan, but the student loan plan is a, is a symptom of what what I'm worried about. We're going to have an election for president next year. And when people are this desperate, I wonder how they will vote. I wonder how they will vote. I don't care what they say they are, if they say they're Republican or they're Democrat or they're conservative or they're liberal. I don't care if they live in a red or blue state. I don't I don't care about any of that because I'll tell you right now, none of that is as important as not being able to sleep at night because you can't pay your bills. None of that is as important. And and I'll tell you what else is not important. When you start talking to people who can't pay their bills and are having to whip out their credit card for things they never dreamed they would put in a credit card, when people like that start hearing politicians talk about like freedom and smaller government, it doesn't mean anything. Sorry, it doesn't. You know how important those things are and how important they are to me, so don't get me wrong, but... Like, people that are hurting aren't going to care whether the college loan forgiveness thing is constitutional or not. They need help. And that takes me to the election. I worry that even though normally, what we normally do in America when the economy is in the, in the gutter, is we turn to whatever party is out of power and we say, okay, guys, your turn. Show us what you can do, right? I worry that this time a charlatan, a demagogue comes along and says, look, I'm not going to use words like capitalism and freedom or socialism. I'm going to, I'm just going to tell you this. I got a plan to save you. I can help your family. We can get you out of debt. And I think people might vote for that. I think people might vote for somebody you and I are not even talking about right now. A name that isn't even in the news right now. Because that's how desperate people are becoming. Now, not everybody, maybe not you, but just put yourself in mind of somebody who is in a financial position or posture they've never been in before, and they're scared. And And they're younger. Millennials are younger people. They don't have a lot of experience. They don't remember a lot of what you and I would call normal. So if somebody said, and and also remember, if you're under 40 in America, you didn't get the, the kind of public school education that people in their 50s, 60s, 70s got. You didn't learn about econ 101. You didn't learn about capitalism and Miesian economics and the Austrian school and laissez faire. You didn't, you didn't learn any of that. You learned that all good things come from the government. So I worry about how people are going to vote, and I worry that somebody will give them a a snake oil prescription and they'll take it. What do you think about that? 210-599-5555. Again, if you apply precedent, Biden and the Democrats are in big trouble. And maybe they are. Maybe they are. But I don't really know where this leads us, because if you're a conservative and you hold office, my question to you is, are you showing us what conservative government can do for us? Are you showing us what's good about it? Are you showing us how it helps people? Are you showing us what it can mean to somebody who's having to put their groceries on their MasterCard and can't do that much longer? What do you think? 210-599-5555. I hope every conservative who holds office at any level is thinking along these lines and thinking we've got to show what we can do. Words are not enough for people like this. All right, 210-599-5555 or jack at KTSA.com. They asked Corinne Jean-Pierre yesterday at the White House about the president's um, low approval rating on the economy. I want you to hear her answer because we You know, we, we, we poke fun at her, and we have some fun with some of her answers. But I actually think in this case, she's giving the answer that they're going to give. This is going to be the answer you'll hear for the next year and a half. So this is KGP talking about the uh, KJP, talking about the president's low numbers on the economy. Uh, cut number eight. So a new Fox
2: News poll shows that only 36% of voters approve of the president's handling of the economy. 31% approve of the inflation, ways handling inflation. Are voters just not getting the right message, or is there something wrong with the president's policies?
3: So look, first of all, no, there's nothing wrong with the president's policy. But this goes into a little bit of the COVID origins question that I've been that I've gotten a couple times, and that clearly my colleague has gotten uh, uh, a couple times as well. We have just coming out, what the American people have had to deal with for the last almost three years now, if you think about it, COVID, right? COVID-19, once-in-a-generation pandemic, uh, which really uh, put put the economy, as you know, into a tailspin. Uh, And the president, when he walked in, there was, the last administration did not have a comprehensive plan on how to deal uh, with COVID and how to make sure that uh, we were getting people shots in arms. As simple as that. How do we get the economy back on its feet?
1: So, I mean, she's not the smoothest talker, but I think that's the answer they're going to give across the board. And if you notice, that answer isn't just it's Trump's fault. We all laugh about that, right? Everything is Trump's fault. Cloudy days and sprained ankles, you know. But but, but, really what they're saying is 2019 never happened. 2018 never happened. History began with the COVID pandemic. And so the COVID pandemic, in their vision, is the baseline. So anything that's any better than that is great. But don't be thinking, hey, I'd really like an economy like we had in 2018 or 2019. No, that's not possible. That didn't even happen. What are you talking about? They're gaslighting you. Everything is Trump and COVID. History began in 2020. And... That's why I'm worried about people electing a socialist who, of course, will not call themselves a socialist. But I think we're being primed for demagoguery and a completely weird direction that we've never gone in before. And the reason we're being primed that way is because people are really unhappy and scared, and they're being told, oh, well, um, COVID broke everything. Now, if everything's broken, then it's gone, right? We're not having an election next year where we talk about restoring the growth of the past or restoring the confidence. Let's bring back America. Let's make America great again. Let's bring back. No, see, that that's all gone. That, that was destroyed by COVID. It doesn't exist anymore. It never even happened. What are you talking about? So that's what I think about when I look at these stories about people with credit cards and debt and record debt and... And then I hear that answer, which we know they give her her answers. They're, they're, you know, she's not the one pasting them into her, into her binder. Those are the answers that the, the cadre of people around Joe Biden, the, you know, the people that have, uh, <laughs> that have to fill out his, uh, his teleprompter and guide him around, th- that is how they're going to approach the 2024 election. Well, where does that leave us, do you think? Where does that lead us? I, the The conversation we never seem to have is why higher education is so expensive. And if we don't deal with that, then we can't, there, there there, there, aren't enough political gestures and sops and giveaways to cover it. By the way, every single thing the government does to address the price of higher education inflates the price of higher education, including this latest gambit from Biden. And and remember, Joe Biden at one time publicly said, I don't have the power to do this. The president can't do this. And then he did it. Or, of course, he didn't do it. The handlers did it. But I, I we, we really need to have, in any logical, rational world, the real question would be, why the hell did it go up so exponentially high? I mean, I look at what I paid, and yes, that was... 30-something years ago, but it, it, it the, the inflation of it makes no sense. It's, it's not comparable to the inflation of anything else in my life or yours. And when you look at the way higher education works, it responds to every new infusion of government money by raising tuition and by hiring more administrators and creating more overhead and doing more build So it's not as if they're pinching pennies and trying to keep it lean and mean. And I would argue the quality has not gone up. The quality of the finished product has not gone up. A college graduate, circa 2023, I'm sorry to say I don't think is of the same caliber as a college graduate of, say, 1983. So... That's the discussion, but of course that's not the one the politicians want to have. Um, what do you think about it? I mean, I, 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 if you're against it, I, I get that. If you believe there should be student loan forgiveness or student loan renegotiation or subsidization, um, how do you address the other piece of it, which is that these prices can't keep going up? 210 599 We're going to talk about that. And then I, I realize it's somebody told me that that my uh, Jack Riccardi just a minute video was a bummer today was a downer. It, it may be, it may be. I'm I'm a I'm a downer kind of guy, you know. Um, the fun guys are in the morning. I'm I'm the guy that we got to deal with the serious stuff here, okay? But but here's what I'm saying. Um, I am virulently against socialism, but I'm always thinking about how it could worm its way in. And. People much smarter than me have observed or predicted over the years that when socialism comes to America, it won't come by the name socialism. It won't be the socialism party. It won't be somebody with an ass after their name. It'll be called something else. It'll be called something that sounds great. This is just what we need. And I think it'll take the form of those you know pitchmen those that we see on late night t v or those traveling salesmen that in our grandparents' time would go from town to town and they had something to cure what ails you, and somebody is going to look at these economic statistics, this debt, this credit card issue the the foreclosures on cars and homes, the college and they're gonna say to a large swath of America, and again, it may not fool you good for you but it's gonna fool a lot of people they're gonna say you know what this is because of greed and capitalism and um, we've got to blow this whole thing up this there's no reforming this you've been betrayed you've been you've been cheated the reason you're in debt is because you've been cheated and it'll be like those commercials you see on television for law firms right when you watch those Commercials, everything is, you are owed money. You are owed big time. We're going to go get you a lot of money. You are owed. And that's what a politician running for president in 2024 is going to say. He may be a Republican. He may be a Democrat. He may be neither one. He may be somebody we're not even talking about right now. He's going to say to people like the ones I described or the people for that billboard living in their car, you've been cheated, and we're going to get what you deserve. And that's going to be socialism by some other name. And what if people say, you know what, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of you conservatives promising me that more freedom would be better for me or more liberty would be better for me. Or if I had school choice or if I had this or I had that. You keep telling me that, but it's not working. It hasn't arrived. And they're going to say, I'll take a chance on this thing I'm not so sure of or I've never heard of before because they're promising to help us. That's why there's any support. For what Biden did what Biden did with student loans is transparently political but but the reason it even has the support it has is because so many people are broke who didn't think they would be voting in the jr. poll we're asking you about the Supreme Court holding hearings on the president's student loan forgiveness. now I got to tell you for a lot of people in this economy who are racking up debt they've the likes of which they've never been in and the millennials are doing it at the fastest rate anyone has ever seen right now, they're not going to care if it's constitutional or not. Their opinion of it is not going to be based on whether it's constitutional or not. Uh, and this is going to be true of a lot of things that you will hear about in the next year and a half before the next election. Um, the the fact that people are afraid and desperate um, is going to make it very difficult to get their attention as to whether something is actually within the power of the person proposing it. But that is what's in front of the Supreme Court. And joining us to talk about that on the ktsa Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line is Professor of Law at St. Mary's University, Bill Pyatt. Professor, good afternoon.
4: Good afternoon, Jack. Thank you for having me.
1: So on the uh, student loan issue, I know there's two cases, and and one is brought by a series of states, and one is brought by a series of people for whom the forgiveness did not extend. Um, And I guess what we're looking at is whether the president has, within the scope of his executive power, uh, the power to forgive some student loan debt, right?
4: That's correct. Um, And the reason we're in in front of the Supreme Court is because there was an act in 2003 where Congress, uh, the HEROES Act, Mm-hmm. gave the president power to waive some of the provisions of the student loan program in cases of an emergency. Um, president Biden initially thought he did not have the constitutional authority. I think he was correct. He did not and does not have the constitutional authority to take that act and not just waive student loan payments, which President Trump did during the pandemic, but taking the next uh, and now the repayment, but he has canceled or intentionally canceled And the uh, constitutional difficulty is that Congress has the power of the purse. Congress decides Mm -hmm. how to spend the people's money. The president executes those programs. The president does have some power with clear congressional authorization. And I'm quoting Chief Justice Roberts in an earlier case. If Congress gives the president clear congressional authorization to do something the courts will probably uphold the president acting Mm -hmm. with congressional authority. But in this case, it does not appear that Congress gave the president clear congressional authority to eliminate part of the payments. Uh, There's no guidelines. How did they pick 10,000? Why not five? Why Mm -hmm. not 11? Mm
5: -hmm. Uh,
4: Some of the people that qualify, other people don't qualify and the criteria Mm -hmm. seems inconsistent. Those types of decisions could be made by Congress. If the people voted in a, uh, in a Congress that would enact these specific programs, that would not be a constitutional problem. The constitutional problem is when the president, acting on his own, makes this declaration that would wipe out and, in effect, mm-hmm. cost taxpayers $400 billion.
1: Now, I, I read an analysis of this HEROES Act. That's the 2003 law that you're referring to. and And, and this analysis made a point I had not heard before, which said that this law was to keep people from a worse position. It was to enable for, uh, you know, a, a limited period of time in a national emergency to maintain the status quo. Quote, it does not allow the secretary uh, of education to put nearly every borrower in a better position by reducing or eliminating their balances, unquote. Is, does that sound right to you?
4: That sounds right. Uh, Congress could have done that, but Congress did not do that. Um, And there's also the national emergency issue as to whether or not going forward we're going to be in a national emergency when in every other context we're saying the uh, pandemic is done, we're eliminating other COVID-related programs. I I think the Supreme Court is not going to have too much difficulty in saying that the president overstepped his authority.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the best case that the administration can make for what they did let let me put you on the devil's advocate side so if you were arguing their side what how would you defend what they've done
4: well first of all i would attack the standing which they have tried but it doesn't sound like the supreme court is going to buy that Uh, the argument is that you don't get advisory opinions you have to have someone who has actual adverse interests at stake if the decision goes one way or the other and at least arguably the states that are involved have not lost anything or might not lose anything it's speculative the individuals who weren't going to qualify anyway haven't lost anything as a result of this they still took out the money the loans they still would have had to repay it so I had a tax standing which they tried and I don't think it's going to work then the next thing I would do is I would point to that waiver language in the HEROES Act and say that if the student loan provisions can be waived implicitly that involves more than just postponing repayments It's waiving the substance of the payment itself. Then the other thing I would do is what they've tried to do is make it a social uh, policy argument, which the Supreme Court is really not supposed to be in the business of of making. That's supposed to be to our elected officials. And they get the high profile of there's so many students in need. I I heard your discussion, and I I agree. There's so many people hurting right now that we can at least alleviate some of the suffering that uh, those, those people are undergoing. So, I mean, I think those would be, and those are the arguments they made. I yeah. don't think it's going to carry the constitutional weight with the majority of the court.
1: One other quick question. In the, the oral arguments, Chief Justice Roberts kept mentioning the size of the the, the size of the price tag. And I was puzzled by that, and I wanted to ask you why. If you are talking about whether or not he has the authority, then I would think the price tag would be irrelevant. Well,
4: Justice Chief Justice Roberts has has used the that phrase "clear congressional authorization and I, in uh, in other contexts in deciding whether an agency has the power to go beyond what Congress has said it could do, so the size of the program might go to deciding whether or not there was clear congressional authorization to eliminate up to four hundred billion dollars from the federal treasury that that might be the hook but no you 're right if if it 's just a matter of whether the president had the authority to spend a dollar ten dollars or four hundred billion total amount shouldn't make the difference. It should be whether he went beyond what Congress gave yep. him the authority to do in the first place.
1: Professor Bill Pyatt joining the show, St. Mary's University School of Law. Professor, thank you. Thank you, Jack. All right, and Mike is on the Jack Riccardi Show on KTSA. Mike, good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
1: yeah what do so you think I, about I was this?
0: I um, I think it's pretty crazy. I mean, I went to school. I knew I had to pay for it. I worked up to three jobs at a time to pay for my undergrad. Before I even got out of there, I was debt-free, um, paid for everything, went to grad school, again, worked two, three jobs at a time. Didn't come out debt-free, but within two years after that, I was out of it. I mean, I don't understand why people think that other people have to pay their debts. And mm. it, just is, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think this whole thing that people are talking about now about equity and I think that's the new word for the Mm -hmm. socialism coming, coming home.
6: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, that kind of like I guess makes like the ground level for these people to think that, well, it should be fair to everybody, but it's almost like saying I'm going to get in a race with Usain Bolt and I'm at that fast (laughs) and Mm -hmm. he's going to beat me. But at the end of the race, we both get gold medals. That's, that's equity right there. You know? So I think that it sends the wrong message to everybody. Mm. And I think people that have that expectation uh, should go back to school and get a better degree or something.
1: Mm. I don't know. Did you uh, go to college before COVID?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm old. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. okay. Uh, because that's the other thing I noticed. I agree with you about equity, but I also notice that everything now is couched in terms of well, because of COVID, and, and the message I'm yeah. getting from that is you you can't have the the expectations, Jack and Mike. That you guys had before, those are gone. Uh, It's a new world now. It's the it's the COVID world, and and we have to do this stuff because of COVID and Trump.
0: I heard a lot about that. I've done other things and real estate and such, and uh, the the runaround you would get from everybody that you were working with was well because of COVID this, because of COVID that. I'm charging you more because of COVID, but you know after a while, COVID had nothing to do with it. So if I've ever got that Mm -hmm. response from somebody, I'm like okay, well. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give my business to somebody else that's going to work mm-hmm. well with me. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, COVID's just been used way too much mm-hmm. uh, to kind of just run everything. And I think at this point right now we're beyond it. Um, and again, just it, this is unnecessary, and I think it's just a political stunt. And unfortunately, it might work for people who don't know better.
1: Yeah, Mike, well said, all of it. Thank you. So um student loan debt forgiveness is in front of the Supreme Court. It's on the JR poll. But it's really, if you think about it, it's a symptom. It's not just a thing in and of itself. We can't discuss this like in a vacuum, okay? Uh, because it's a symptom of not just the old politicians giving stuff away, you know. It, it also, to me, is part of what I think is going to totally shape the next election, which is that if a large percentage of people especially younger people with not a lot of life experience are broke and worried and feel like they can't get out from under Um, that puts us in a very vulnerable position for socialism for demagoguery for somebody to really run away with that election And, and, and by the way this is not going to be an election where you can just sort of throw words around like, you know, liberty. And you're going to have to, whoever you are, if you want the vote, you're going to have to say, I know what to do. I've got a plan. This will work. And I just, I look at people like AOC. I look at people like some of these far left. Uh, big city uh, machine politicians that we mock and ridicule for how what, what a cesspool their cities are, but see these are the people that worry me because um, they they can craft a message that is perfect for the people that are worried and broke, and if you're over here as a conservative saying hey free market economics come on that's not going to they don't want to hear it they want money. And they want it now. That's We have not had an election like that in a long time. 210 so 599 that's So to me, that's the setting for the student loan thing. And Ray is on KTSA. Ray, good afternoon.
7: Good afternoon, uh, Jack. First time I've ever called, but you are my drive home every day. Oh, I appreciate um, that. My take on all of this would be, well... Obviously, President Biden has um, violated the Constitution as it takes an act of Congress. Congress has the person rights. Um, that being said, I also have to agree with you that he's just placating to that socialist, socialist-esque progressive wing of his own party that believes that everyone gets a participation trophy. And... You are owed everything. You don't have to work for anything. Part of the reason that free market economy you just mentioned is kind of going down the tubes is no one wants to get their butt off the couch and do anything or go to work. And I think that is going to be a problem. And I, too, have to worry about this next coming election because a lot of these young millennials are going to be voting and have no idea except that, hey, if you can give – Give me something or I can get something from you. You got my vote.
1: And I don't, I don't know if that's actually. fair. I don't know if that's fair, Ray. I don't know if that's fair because I, I think there may be people. I, I know there are people like you're describing. I know there are. So let's, let's put that aside. But I, I think you got to admit there are also people who would never say, I want other people's money or I'm a freeloader. Or, I don't want to get off my ass, but they are working and they cannot keep up. And they are falling behind, and they are putting things on their credit card. And if somebody was to say to them, hey, you know, I'm going to take this worry off your plate. You're not, you're not going to have to worry about college anymore. They're not going to say, gee, let me think about that. I want to know if it's constitutional. They're going to be, thank you very much. And so that's, that's how it starts. You take a few more things like that, and you could elect a socialist, not in the name socialist, but just somebody who sounds like they're your best friend.
7: And I agree with that, um, and that, you're right, it wouldn't be called a socialist, it'd be called a progressive. Um,
1: they will not even call that, it and would just be like, this is common sense, you know, people, we can't pay these prices, no one should be expected to pay these prices, let us help you. Well, but you know, we, we've doing, done it before, uh, we just haven't done it to the degree that I'm worried we're going to do it now, but I mean, Trump and Biden were sending out checks like like they were uh, the, you know, publisher's clearinghouse, and I mean... exactly. That, that should have alarmed us, but people were like, damn, I'm glad to get this money, right? People that were getting that money weren't going, oh, I'm going to shred this because I'm not sure it's constitutional or I'm not sure it's good economics. They they took the damn money. And I'm just saying there could be a lot more where that came from.
7: Well, the only thing I can say about socialism, having, I actually have, had my ex-wife from the former Soviet Union, and I actually lived in Moscow, Russia for 10 years. The people there took the yeah they took all the freebies they could get but there was that black market that under the under the radar capitalist um society yeah. that yeah. you did whatever you could to get ahead so right. i'm hoping not to see anything like that here thank you very <laughs> you much too. for your time i appreciate thank taking you Ray. the call
1: yeah i'm glad you called and i hope you'll call again and thank you for all the listening I, I gotta play a couple of things for you and just, just, it, maybe you can help me understand what the president is talking about here because I, I don't, I don't, apparently I don't speak fluent Bidenese. Um, here's the president, uh, at a Black History Month event yesterday. Cut number five.
4: I, I, I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> I know where the
8: power
1: is. I know where the, po- you think I'm joking. I, You know, uh, I know you're not joking. I may be a white boy, uh, but I'm not stupid. I I, I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. You can't make up stuff like this. You couldn't make it up. You couldn't do a, a Saturday Night Live sketch. You couldn't write a movie script. You couldn't tell a joke. Nobody would buy it. Isn't he the same fellow who on the campaign trail said poor kids are just as smart as white kids or something like that? I don't know if he's a racist or not because to tell you the truth, and this may shock you, nobody really knows if someone else is a racist unless they tell you they are. Otherwise, we're all just guessing what's in the hearts and minds of the people around us. But, but the dude has problems talking about race. Can we agree on that? Can we come together on that? It just gets very weird when Joe Biden, 80 years old, talks about race. At the same event, he was um, bragging again about the diversity of his administration you have to understand that to get to that diversity, Joe Biden is working with a bunch of people he does not know. These are not like people he's had his eye on for years. If I ever become president, I'm going to write this name down in a notebook, and if I ever become president, I'm going to call this person. That's what our past presidents have done. I mean, we know this. That's what Clinton did. That's what Reagan did. That's what Bush did. These people around Joe Biden, there's a reason he forgets their names. It's not just because he's 80. He doesn't really know them. They were picked for him to be diverse. But listen to what he says about diversity. And then he he looks right into the eyes of black congressman Jim Clyburn. Listen to this one, cut number nine.
4: A special thanks to members of the most diverse administration in history who are here. The most diverse administration, right, Jim?
1: Right, Jim? It's like he's, it's like he's presenting a receipt. I, I, I did what you wanted, Jim. Thank you for helping me win in South Carolina in 2020 so my presidential campaign was not over. <laughs> Thank you for pulling my fat out of the fire in the South Carolina primary because I had lost badly everywhere else up to that point and you engineered a victory for me in, in your state of South Carolina thereby allowing me to become the ersatz frontrunner in the democratic field and overnight and all of a sudden and out of nowhere harris is conceding and castro is conceding and this one and that one and they're all endorsing me right jim but
0: you think i'm joking
1: yeah i delivered for you jim right it's a very odd thing to watch we, you know we've watched a lot of presidents I've never seen one who so obviously worked for other people. Doesn't know where to stand, doesn't know where to sit, doesn't know if he should say it, doesn't know if he can answer that question. Who am I supposed to call on? I mean we we talk about stuff like it's Biden doing it. This is Biden's death forgiveness. I don't think any of these things are his. And I think I have good reason to suspect that they're not because he he's not fluent in the presentation of them. Now Again, allowing for his age, and I'm not in disagreement with those who wonder whether there are some issues, health issues, cognitive issues, but, but I also think I think I can tell when someone is spinning their own like philosophy. You know, even as you get older and you do start to stumble and stutter a little, when you're when you're in your wheelhouse, when you're delivering the stuff that's near and dear to you that you've always believed, there's a certain fluency to that. And he doesn't have it. And when you look at his political career, there's no, like, this all came out of nowhere. It would be as if the Joe Biden who existed prior to 2019 is gone, and somebody who looks and acts just like him was rolled out sometime in 2019 and has this completely different outlook on everything. Everything and someday somebody will write a book about this because it's it's fascinating, he became president by turning on everything he had previously been known for and stood for. Tur- he turned on his own record. You think he says mean stuff about Trump. <laughs> the, the, the harshest attack Joe Biden's ever carried out is the attack Joe Biden has carried on pre-2019 Joe Biden. If that guy ever shows up, he's going to be mad. Right, Jim. Right, Jim. Gave you what you wanted, Jim. Am I okay, Jim? Will you help me out again? I'm going to need you again. 210-599-5555. All right, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the student loans. Um, Ron DeSantis did an interview. I want to play a little of that for you coming up. I think you need to hear. Uh It's interesting. And um, it, may, it may speak to what we were just talking about with how conservatives really need to get their act together in the next election. Not just because they're out of power right now, but because this could be it for freedom or socialism, for the idea that you earn your stuff or the idea that you are owed your stuff. I mean, that may be the central question of this election. Do I earn, or am I owed? O-W-E-D. And, and and I think DeSantis is sounding like he gets that. Sean is next on the radio on KTSA. Hi, Sean.
8: Hi, Jack. Um, I'm one of those millennials that has a ton of debt. I finished uh, professional school recent, recently and mm-hmm. uh, have over $200,000 of debt. But I went. I went to school... You know, and got that debt, knowing that I'd be able to pay it back. And I've talked to a lot of my classmates when I was in school, and they were all mm. excited about the debt forgiveness thing and stuff. But every single one that I talked to, I, I would tell them, hey, you know, you can you can get this loan forgiveness now and and get out of you know however many dollars of debt, but you're going to be paying for everyone else's for the rest of your life. So I think you'd probably mm. rather pay off yours and be done with it. And really. Everybody I told that was like, oh, wow, that's really true. They were really receptive to it. So I think if we change the message a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe people will think about it differently.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Um, I I do think, though, as I was hearing you talk, I was thinking to myself, it, it's welfare when someone else gets it, right? <laughs> and, it's, and it's help when you get it. I mean, if we're going to be honest, there will be a lot of people who will politically oppose this idea but if they qualify for it, they are absolutely going to take it.
8: Oh, I 100 percent agree. You know, I, I can't say I'm going to pass up. You know, student. I'm not going to. I'm not going to allow myself to just be behind everyone else. Uh, no. For no. the idea, probably not. You know. And then if you
1: extend that to other things, and we were talking about all the other debt that millennials appear apparently are now in, um, I really think we could see. Th- two, three, four more of these applied to other areas of, you know, housing debt, consumer debt, car debt. And they'll make the same argument. It's better for the economy. It's better for everyone. We need to get everybody out from under. And that could be a very seductive message in 2024. The person that promises all that could could win running away.
8: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think uh, I think there is a little bit of a difference, though, between, you know, taking... Uh, things that are handed to you and and voting for those things. To me, it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I would never vote for it, but if mm-hmm. someone were to offer it to me, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. if, you know, if it was being offered to everybody, then I'd probably take it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Sean, thank you. Great call. Great to, great to hear from you, and good luck with your with your degrees and your uh, paying off that debt. Um, 210-599-5555. All right, so um, Ron DeSantis is not running for president, or he is by not running or something. I mean, everybody assumes he is, but he hasn't said it, and he's not declared. He's written a book, which is usually a dead giveaway. Uh, You know, he that writeth a book before an election is running in an election. I think it's in the Bible. So um he sat down with Mark Levin on the Fox show that Levin does on Sundays. And I want to play a little of this for you and see what you think about it. Get your reaction to it. So here's DeSantis telling Mark Levin that he actually wrote this book. It wasn't written for him. Cut
9: number two. Well, look, my and I actually wrote it. As you know, most elected officials aren't actually writing their, their, their books. I mean, you write all yours, but it's not an easy thing to do. But uh, I think it comes across as more authentic as it is me writing this and I also don't believe in some of the gossip stuff it's like if you and I would have had a private conversation three years ago why should I regurgitate that and put that out there when you were talking to me in confidence and so I try to focus on on the policies the principles and then a lot about what does it mean to be a leader in this day and age because as you know Mark when you're standing for our values uh, you come under assault in American society it's not just from leftist elected officials of course you've got to battle them you've got woke ideology taking over so many of these different institutions corporate america our bureaucracy universities that if you're standing for the right things you're gonna have to show courage under fire uh, if you ultimately want to bring this stuff in for a landing and so we had to do that so many different times and i just felt that's something that i think people are going to be more interested in than me kind of dishing about private conversations yeah. i may have had with somebody that people know
1: um. Mark Levin, who never disappoints, asked a question I love to ask people when we interview them, political people. Uh, He asked, what what does it mean to be a conservative? What is conservative? Because everybody throws the word around but doesn't have to back it up, right? Doesn't have to cash the check. So here is his answer to that, cut number three.
9: Well, I think the foundation of it is understanding uh, the American project. Our rights come from God, not from the government the founders rejected the divine right of kings and it used to be some people did have rights but it was a courtesy of the state So that's not how our system works we have these god-given rights we loan power to the government under a constitution to protect those rights and i think that what we've seen in more modern society is we've seen an unmooring of those constitutional foundations we have an administrative state uh, which is totally out of control. Uh, it violates people's freedoms. It's really been weaponized against factions of the country that, that the ruling class doesn't like. And it's, it, we need to reconstitutionalize, uh, this government. But, but what we're facing now, uh, I think is not what the founders intended in terms of how this government should be operating.
1: Now, the other thing that grabbed my attention, because I'm not comparing myself to him, but, I've had people ask me, you're from New England, you went to a liberal, very liberal New England university, Boston University, how how is it that you're conservative? Well, uh, Ron DeSantis was born in and raised in Florida, but he explains how going to college in the Northeast, he went to Yale, he went to Harvard, uh, helped sharpen what he already had been raised with and believed in. I I like this answer a lot. Take a listen to this,
9: cut number four. I get to Yale. I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't even know colleges were liberal. I mean, I was like 18 years old. I show up my first day, and in Florida, we would wear things like jean shorts, flip-flops, and a t-shirt, so I show up my first day wearing that and you've got kids from andover and groton and i was a fish out of water uh... and it was a major major culture shock i wasn't like a refined conservative in terms of politics because i was mostly into sports and things like that but you start sitting in some of these classrooms and even though one of yale's mottos is for god for country for yale sit in the classroom Attacking religion, attacking God, attacking the United States. I'm sitting in class and they're saying that the U.S. was to blame for the Cold War, not not Joseph Stalin. So this is the and I had never experienced that because growing up in Dunedin, I didn't know if people were Republican or Democrat. You know, you had both of them, but but everyone kind of believed in the core American principles, and so that was my exposure. Uh, to the left, and I think what it did for me was it was so different from what I thought what was appropriate that I wasn't influenced by it in terms of it pulling me in that direction. I rebelled the other way. Mm.
1: I felt the same way. The more I was around leftist thinking, the more I was on edge about it. The more sharpened I was toward it, and and then listening to Ron DeSantis tell that anecdote to Mark Levin gave me this thought, and I just want to put this idea out there, and I'm not saying it has to be Ron DeSantis, but it's one thing to be a conservative if you've always been around conservatives, if you've grown up in a conservative household, if you live in a red state. If if that is what you're immersed in, um, I'm not saying you're inauthentic, but you're untested, right? You're untested. If you have conservative values, if you understand this concept called America, and if you understand the founding, and the the expression is a great expression, we loan power to government, but the power is ours. If you understand those things, but you travel to, go to school in, live in, an area where that is not widely accepted and, and that is in fact rejected, um, it hardens you, it toughens you up. And I've, I've started to notice that the best conservatives at defending conservatism seem to come from places where they've always had to do that. And the people that are the worst at defending it are people that have always lived, for example, here in a red state or in the south. Or where everything around them and everyone around them told them, you're right. Of course you feel the way you do. We all do. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not running anybody down. I'm not, but I think we should really be looking for people that have been tested because when you run for president, you're going to have to go everywhere and you're going to have to retail these ideas in places where people have never heard them, ever heard them. And in fact, they've been been lied to and told the opposite. You're going to be talking to people who really think everything they have is because of big government. And they don't realize what big government has stolen and what big government has prevented. And so I like the fact that he is saying, you know what? It was a strength that I went up there and went to college there because he's right. Uh, Ron DeSantis on Mark Levin show Sunday night, uh, talking about his new book. Um, and, and, and obviously everything he does is, uh, covered from the, the standpoint of this guy might be running for president. This guy's probably running for president. Writing a book is a, is kind of a giveaway, but. In fact, um, I like the fact that he's making the case for his candidacy without the candidacy part. Because nobody thinks that we need presidential elections to start earlier and earlier and earlier and drag on longer and longer and longer. I don't know anybody who says, you know, doggone it, we don't get enough politics. Let's, let's, have, let's make this a longer process. I don't know anybody that thinks that. I don't know anybody in New Hampshire or Iowa who would welcome another politician traipsing through. Believe me, I, I worked in New Hampshire. They're not crazy about it. I think he's smart to just wait and bide his time. And, of course, he has an advantage that the others don't have. He's winning every day. He may not be campaigning, but he's winning. He's beating the left every day. And... He's demonstrated that he can stand up to them, not only and win, but he can stand up to them without wilting. We've had so many would-be leaders that just got tired. And so far, no matter how hysterical the left gets, no matter how unhinged their response is to him, he is beating them. Whether it's firing a George Soros-backed DA, whether it's straightening out state college curricula, whether it's going after the licensing of venues that are hosting perverted drag shows for little kids, so I, I think I think he's playing it right if, in fact, he's going to run. And I'm kind of intrigued by the the whole. I've been around the other side and. It tested me, thing. Because yeah, if you, you you can be very secure in your beliefs, you can feel really strongly, you can say it right, you can have it all right in your head, but if you've only ever been around people that are friendly to that, it's it's just different. It just is. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Um, speaking of woke. Curriculum. I'll play this for you. This is a, um, there's so many of these. I don't even know whether to play them anymore or if they've just become kind of uh, a cliche, but this is another libs of TikTok, uh, video. It's a, it's a teacher, um, telling the kids that she can be their mom. She's telling the kids that they can confide in her. Uh, she's out to them as queer. And she can be their mom. I'm your mom. Listen to this. Cut number 10.
3: Can't say how amazing it is to be the queer representation I did not have, and so many people do not have when they were kids. I mean, I'm a teacher. I am not just a teacher. No. I mean, I've actually had quite a few kids tell me I look like a guy, which for me that's actually kind of a compliment. I'm not sure how I'm something of like that. But... Being able to show these kids that being who they are, loving who they are, being part of who they are, showing everyone who they are is the best thing that they could do for themselves. I mean, I tell these kids to call me mom at school because I say that I am the school mom. I want them to be able to trust me, to come to me, you know, be able to feel like I'm not just someone who's going to give them good or bad grades, but like someone they can actually talk to, someone they can, yeah, words can confide to and it's the greatest thing I could
1: have ever asked to do in my life you know a lot of people get hung up on the sexuality of these uh, videos and and I would ask you if if it's possible just, just put that aside for a minute and just ask yourself this if your son or daughter maybe your kids are still kids, maybe you had kids a long time ago I don't know if your son or daughter was comfortable confiding all of their secrets in a teacher, are you going to tell me that would not be a concern for you? Are you going to tell me that, that you'd be, you'd be okay with that? Well, as long as, as long as she's telling someone. I don't know any other way to say this, that this is a, this is literally. The definition of a child in a crisis—that that that child is telling things, intimate, private, secret things to essentially a stranger—and and don't take offense if you're a teacher, but you know you have them for a year, you're a stranger. You're a you're a helpful stranger. You're a person who's qualified to teach them. You're stranger. Uh, we spend so much time. We write books, we do videos explaining to children the importance of outside adults behavior and watch for this and be aware of that and don't go off with someone and don't be you know don't don't accept candy and don't go go get in their car and don't go into a room with a closed door and don't. And then somebody in public education is is talking like this. Isn't it interesting how they never talk about scholastic material? They have no interest in it. They don't talk about what they're teaching. They don't even reference what they're teaching. I, every teacher I know, within five seconds of you meeting them, you know what they teach. I'm a math teacher. I'm a science teacher. On these videos, there's no reference. There's no, you, you can't even tell. Parents are going to go from questioning or being wary of public education to being afraid of it which is a damn shame because not all of it is bad and there are a lot of great teachers. But what's happening right now is we are not going to maybe have alternative models of education, K-12 through education. We are definitely going to have them. They are springing up fast the transition to it is happening faster than anyone could have expected or predicted the most optimistic supporters of homeschooling when we started doing homeschooling shows uh, on our show back 20 or more years ago when it was still a new thing you'd have to, you to explain to the audience what it even meant and we had homeschool parents on i remember we did panels with with uh, parents and their kids we'd have them in the studio we'd have them around the mics and we would we would let people hear how it worked and hear how the kids sounded so put together and it was and it was new to a lot of people in their wildest dreams the advocates of homeschooling could not have imagined or predicted how fast this is going to come down and in the end it's not going to be reformers or advocates for homeschooling that will do it it's going to be the teachers who can't shut up can't Shut up about how happy they are, how important it is that the children tell them their secrets, that the children confide their gender identity, that they have secret pronouns only used in the classroom. They even have different names used in the classroom. And it's almost like cosplay, you know? I'm playing with your kids. I'm I'm entertaining my fantasy, their fantasy. And then when their life implodes, collapses, I've moved on. I'm not there. I don't have to pick up the pieces because that's the thing about it. That's the thing. These teachers who ask what do parents have? You I have a degree. What do parents have? Parents have responsibility for the entire life of the child. You have them for one year. So if you break them, you didn't buy them. That's what we have. We pick up the pieces. You're so brave with your videos. What is, in your opinion, the best ever decade for music? What, what, in your opinion, is the best ever decade for music? There's no wrong answer. The best decade of music in your lifetime. And, and, and you know, if you think about it, I, I think you almost have to answer it I realize there'll be exceptions, but you almost have to answer it with the decade that you were in in your teens or twenties. Like that's that's probably going to be your decade. If you think about it, how else could you answer? Not too many people pick the music that came out when they were in their forties, right? Maybe a few. I'm oh, really really loving this modern music, and, and, and there are a few young people who will say, "Well, boy, you know, I, I've I've just gotten completely hooked on." you know this this 50s or 60s music or doo-wop or the great american songbook there are young people that are that are crazy about that stuff but but again there are exceptions and so what would be your decade what is the best ever decade for music 210 599 your best music decade which decade would you choose
0: baby if I made mad, for something i might have said it's not forgetting my past
5: The future looks bright ahead. don't be cruel To who heart is true I don't want no other love but Baby, it's still you and
1: me What's your decade? 210 599 55 People have been voting on Facebook all afternoon long and I'll get to some of those here coming up. Uh, but right now our phone lines are open. Your best ever music decade. I, I think for most people, it'll be the decade of their teens or their twenties. You, you tend to, that, that music tends to hit you the most, hit you the hardest, stay with you the longest. Um, but you may be an exception to that. Um, for me, for example, for me, it's the 80s because that was my teens and 20s decade. And um, I, I just, uh, I never get tired of it. It had so many different facets. There were so many different sounds in the 80s. Um And, and I think it was a very prolific uh, decade for music. Um, so I'd say 80s. I would say the 70s second because... Betsy on Facebook made a great point. She said, you know, if you think about 70s music, it, it it literally never fades. It has never gone out of style. It has never gone off the radio. It has never gone out of the, off of the radar. You know, it's, and, and, and if you think about it, 70s music is now 40 or 50 years old. When in our history has there been 40 or 50 year old music this current? it's just it's it's a tribute to that decade that the music does not fade i would say 80s first 72nd what would you say 210 599 55 your 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 best decade for music terry is on 550 and 1071 ktsa terry good evening
10: good evening how are you
1: i'm good what would be your decade
10: well, my decade would be the 70s for me, but then but then you have a I have a different genre that runs in there because I really got into country music after mm-hmm. the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I would say the 80 when it comes to country music it's the 80s, but mm. the 70s was um was my I that's where I grew up, just like you said.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, who were the artists in the 80s that kind of put country on the radar for you? Like who who converted you to that?
10: And, you know, now I'm thinking about it. My son was born in, you know what, it might have been the 90s, because I'm thinking George Strait, Alan Jackson, mm. and all of them.
1: Yeah, there you go. Maybe Garth Brooks.
10: Yeah, 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 exactly.
4: Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm thinking that might be, that might be well, maybe late 80s and 90s. Don, does that sound right? Yeah. You know more about country music, Don. Does that sound right?
4: Yeah, George Strait basically uh, started out early 80s, actually. So, so wait, it could be 80s and 90s, 80s. right? Well, so it could yeah. be 80s. Yeah. There you go.
1: Hey, Terry, that's a great answer. I like it. Thank you very much. Uh, Terry says mainly the 70s, but for country music, the 80s and 90s. 210-599-5555.
5: Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with the mystic smile.
1: Pick your decade. What's it going to be? Which is the best ever decade for music in your lifetime, in your opinion? Which decade do you choose? 210-599-5555. You're also voting on Facebook. Getting a ton of answers on Facebook. I'll tell you coming up which decade is running away with it right now on Facebook, by the way. Penny is on the radio. Hey, Penny, welcome to the Jack Riccardi Show. What's your decade?
10: I have two decades because I am one who listens to all genres of music. Hmm. Um my decade for pop music was the 70s and mm-hmm. my decade for rock mu- or pop music was the 80s. Um I mean I mean the uh, country was the
1: 80s. <laughs> okay.
10: I got that so background. pop
1: music pop music the 70s country music country in the, the 80s. 80s. Okay.
10: And I wanted to let the lady know who also had two two uh decades that George Strait had his first smash hit in 1981 with "Unwound." There you go. I was there you go. country music DJ at the time, and so I kind of grew up with George Strait and their nice. you know, playing his songs.
1: Nice. So you know what I you know what I think, Penny. I don't know if I'll make people mad saying this, but I think starting in the 80s and 90s, country music started to sound a lot more like pop music, and that's I'm not surprised <laughs> that a lot of people swung into it then. You know.
10: Right. Right. The true old country back up until about 1973. I think 73 was the very best ever year for country music. Um, Interesting. But uh, as far as it evolving into the pop, is you're right. It happens in the in the 80s.
1: Yeah, yeah. Where it almost sounded like soft rock. A lot of it. Right. Yeah. Right. That's great observations. Penny, thank you. Great call. Um, but we are going to make you pick one decade. So I don't want to get into this whole splitting it up and all. Just pick a decade. It can be any kind of music, but what's your best decade for music? 210 599 Uh, any decade and any reason. I, I, my, th- my working theory is you're probably going to pick the decade in which you were in your teens or twenties. That seems to be the way this goes, and we've done this before, but you tell me. Um, on Facebook, not to, uh, not to influence the outcome. This is like exit polling, you know. On Facebook, the 70s are running away with it, running away with it. But what's yours? Phone lines open now, 210 599 5555. Mark's on the radio. Hi, Mark.
2: Hey Jack, um, I'm I'm going to go with the 80s, but uh, and I I admit I was those, all of my teen years happened during the 80s, so uh, I'm guilty of that. But I think that another reason I mean the 80s had so much so much good music because it was the early days of punk rock, new wave, metal, mm-hmm. and rap music. Uh, those all kind of started in the 70s, yep. but they got a lot bigger in the 80s. And then yep. on top of that, we had pop, you know, big pop names like Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna, Phil Collins. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, we had uh, some of the older acts like Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, Elton John, Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. They had tons still of still strong, you know, yeah. Lot of, lots of, they were they were big. They had a lot of hits in in the eighties. And then we had you know Van Halen was a great rock band. Journey, I think it was. You know, you're a, dancing a all
1: you're dancing all around the biggest thing of all. You're, you're, you've everything you said is true. You're dancing around the biggest influence of all, though, which I think is MTV.
2: Yep. Yeah, that because
1: that was, MTV sorry. brought that our our parents did not have the ability to get as intimate with and familiar with the musicians they listened to as the children of the 80s did with MTV. It, it it instantly made either new favorites or it made your favorites people you knew, you knew what they looked like. Um I I I don't think you can And of course it it literally made hits. I mean there were there were songs that didn't become hits on the radio they became hits on MTV and then and then radio picked them up but mark i, I think you make a good case for the 80s thank you sir uh what would be your decade 210 599 555 and and just out of curiosity when you pick your decade tell us you know around what age you were in that decade because that will that will tell me if this theory is right i i, I tend to think people pick their teenage and early 20s uh, decade, which is what I did with the 80s. Uh, Javier is on the radio, Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Javier.
2: Hey, how you doing? I'd have to say the 1970s, but I was 19th? born in 77.
1: You were yeah, born in 77? And,
2: uh, I was born in 77. I grew up in the 80s, and I yeah. don't know, I've always been kind of like a little
1: bit of an old soul. Huh, but you're an old soul. Did, like, yeah, old like what, what kind of bands in the 70s uh, make that your favorite decade?
2: Well, the classic rock, the hard rock. Back mm-hmm. when I was in high school, that movie uh, *Days of Confused, came out, and it just when I was in high school, it just took everything over as far as classic mm-hmm. rock and listening to it,
5: mm-hmm.
2: and people trying to portray that when they dressed. When I was in high school, then later on, if you think about it, that show *The Seventies Show* came out, and it was yeah, about the nineteen seventies. Yeah.
1: And uh, I don't I know if we have any. I don't about know about if any it. other decade has more shows and movies and than the seventies, right? I mean that that decade yeah. just never fades,
2: right? Right, and the uh, Country music as well. I didn't appreciate it when I was young, but my stepdad listened to it. As I got older, I yeah. started to appreciate it, but the, the classic outlaw country music of the 70s is what I tend to listen to. Interesting. And even Mexican music from the 70s, yeah. Wow.
1: So even though you were born in 77 like- and you you don't really remember it when it was happening, as you got yeah. older, you, you harked back to it. That's really interesting. Javier, thank you. Appreciate your call. 210 um, 599 Fifty-five. James is on the radio. Hi, James.
2: How you doing, Jack?
1: Good, sir. How are you?
2: Uh, doing well, sir.
1: What's your like uh, What's your decade, you my, James?
2: The eighties.
1: The eighties. Who in the eighties made the eighties your decade?
2: Uh,
0: my big, my the group that did it for me was a uh, Kiss. Okay. But I have to agree. When I heard you say MTV, I had to stop and think a second, and I was like it really changed the way you saw and listened to music yeah just because of MTV
1: yeah yeah um i don't know i hate to, as, as a radio guy i hate to say that but i but i have to admit <laughs> it, it, for a while there MTV was the most important radio station on the planet you know uh,
2: i agree 100% sir
1: yeah but thank you I appreciate the call james so james voting for the 80s As I said, the 70s are killing it on Facebook. But what would be your best ever decade for music? 210-599-5555. Ed is next on The Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Ed.
3: Hey, Jack. How you doing?
1: Good, thank you. How are you?
7: All right. I'm voting for the 60s.
1: Oh, we need to get the 60s in there. We haven't had enough love for the 60s. Now, (laughs) was that your decade that you were a teenager?
3: Uh, yeah, I got a high 7 I'm sorry, say that again.
1: You did what? You did what?
7: Hold on a second. Okay. I'm I'm sorry, Jack. Do you hear me?
1: Yeah, you kind of broke up on us a little bit there.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay, I think we're having a little little trouble with, with Ed's line. I'm sorry, Ed, but we did get your vote for the 60s. I appreciate that. gotta tell you i gotta tell you our uh, producer don cooper hit a grand slam with those music edits those are so good nice nicely done done so kind of reviewing kind of hopscotching through the decades there what's your favorite decade for music 210-599-5555 and mike is on the radio hi mike
6: Hey yeah, I haven't heard blues come up too much, so I'm gonna throw it out there. In nineteen seventy one, I was sixteen years old and went to a Kexel Radio Independence Day Festival. Thought I was going to see Sills and Krauss. I don't remember nothing about them. All I remember is Freddie King. And by the second oh. note I was I, I was ruined for classic rocks from that moment on. It, it evolved all right there into the fabulous Thunderbirds, Johnny Winter, Stevie Ray, Mighty Waters, Robert yeah. Collins. That's all I listened in the seventies. But there's a whole lot of it in that period to listen to.
1: Oh and, my gosh.
6: And it me being the band leader, of my own blues band here in San Antonio. So,
1: <laughs> are you really? What's the name of your band?
6: Yeah, the SA Blue Cats.
1: Oh, okay. Where do you play?
6: We, we're, we're we're playing this Saturday at Two Brothers Barbecue over in West Avenue from three to six, and uh, I got a large band, horn and I play trombone and harmonica, and uh, we've been going for about eighteen years in this town. And then we.
1: Oh wow, that's I love that place. And uh, that I didn't know is that a is that a one time only gig or is that a regular thing for you guys or what?
6: Uh, i 'm there on the last saturday every month i 'm at Sancho's on the last Friday every month, and I play at the okay. Hill country uh, we're kind of we 're kind of all over the place we 're having a good year this year getting booked quite a bit
1: good for you so good for you we're all, my,
6: my you. We're, we're all of that all of us are seventies era music guys that all would agree with me on what I just said everybody in the band you know? so, yeah yeah, yeah that's, no that 's great that's where I go I go to the blues I go to the blues i 'm
1: um, <laughs> with you on the blues i 'm totally with you on that uh, you you name some great ones all right so seventies says Mike. 210-599-5555 what's your best ever decade for music um a lot of votes for the 70s as i mentioned uh Karen on facebook the 80s then the early 2000s then the 70s uh robert says 70s 80s are a close second um i'd say the i'd say the 80s are making a good showing on facebook but the 70s are still way ahead 210 599-5555, what is your best ever decade for music? And Michael is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Michael.
3: Hey, Jack. Thanks for taking the call.
1: Yes, sir. What's your decade?
3: Uh, I would just say early 2000s. Early 2000s definitely got it for me. Um, yeah. You know, like Netflix, Sierra, uh, all those all those guys. Um there's just so much involved with the early two thousands. Like that's mm-hmm. when like hip hop really took off in my mm-hmm. opinion and mm-hmm. really changed changed the the generation. And I, I never just, know what like,
1: to call that for, what do you call that first decade of of the two thousands? Do you just call it the two thousands or the the double zeros or well, what do we, well,
3: you what? have you have to you have to separate it into two decades, right? Like the early two thousands and the right. late two thousands. And that's yeah. kinda how you have to separate every decade nowadays. Like you have the early two thousand tens and then you have the late two thousand tens. Yeah. And I think there you that's go. how we're gonna be looking on it, uh, Furthermore, within every decade uh, moving forward. But thanks for taking the call, Jack.
1: Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the listening, Michael. Um, Lawrence says, the 90s, hands down. All genres of music were listened to by crossover audiences. Um, Emmett says, I was born in 84. I would say the 80s, Metallica, Judas Priest, Queensryche. But you also have the new wave like New Order. Thank you for mentioning New Wave appreciate that personally on a personal basis a lot of mentions of the 70s bruce says 70s for fashion um herbert says um i love the big band sound of the 40s frank sinatra of the 50s and 60s probably favored his 60s rock and roll so he's voting for all the decades uh but i'm going to ask you to just pick one if you can just just give me your favorite one 210-599-5555 scott is next on the radio hi scott
8: Hey, Jack. Thank you, sir. Hey, Yes, sir. 60s, you got, you got the Beatles and, and you got uh, Motown. That, that's all you need, just sort of right there by itself.
1: Hmm, okay. Mo- Beatles and Motown makes for a pretty good decade right there. Now, how old were you in the 60s? I
8: was born in 62.
1: See, I, it's fascinating to me. So you really couldn't have been listening to a lot of this when it was new. You, you had to have come back to it, right?
8: I, I have memories when I was six, seven, eight years old yeah. listening to it. I had a, I had a 45 uh, revolution mm-hmm. that uh, I used to carry around with me. I was so proud of it. And I was, wow. uh, you know, it was probably seven, eight years old, nine years old, something like that. You know, because when
1: I was that age, um, I, I'm a little a little bit younger than you, but when I was that age, the only music I ever heard was whatever my parents put on. Like, I wasn't I wasn't picking anything out, you know. So that's fascinating that you already knew what you wanted and could and could, you know, select what you wanted.
8: Oh yeah, I you know I used to stand in front of the mirror with my buddy, and uh, we'd be playing air guitar and air drums and practicing <laughs> for the we were gonna have. And, oh, yeah.
1: Thank God, all of us that did that didn't actually go into music, right?
7: Hey, hey baby. <laughs>
1: There wouldn't have been room for all of us. All right, all those mirror-playing guitar players. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate you. Uh, John is on the radio as we talk about your best-ever music decade. Hi, John.
3: Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. You told me to narrow it down to a decade, but I like several decades, but mine was the 70s. Mm.
1: And what about the seventies makes that your favorite? I'm
3: talking about like you know, maybe when I was eight or nine years old, the early seventies, like the 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 pop, like uh, the Jackson Five, the DeFranco oh, yeah. family, Red Redbone, things family. like that, which led into the disco era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when, when disco died, I got into the punk and the new wave and all that stuff. The Kiss, everything. It was it, it was a whole it's a melting pot of music that I listened to in my household.
1: Yeah. I do love, I do love disco. My first radio station that I ever worked at was a disco station and I've never, it was the first, first time I really ever played music as a disc jockey and I just, I've loved it ever since. And I, and I really feel like, um, I don't know how you feel about it, John, but I, I, I kind of feel like, um, it never, for people that love it, disco didn't die. It, it died it in the popular did. culture, but I, I still listen to it and I'll bet you still do.
3: Oh, yeah. I have so many records of that era. It's it's uncanny. Yeah. I mean, I've I've got to have like a million records. Uh, I just love the music. I like all kinds of music, but that's my era the, of yeah. time when I was going to high school. I mean, if you weren't listening to rock, Peter Frampton, Kiss, you were listening to Donna Summer or the Confunction or Parliament and things like that. I grew up in a melting pot of music.
1: Yeah, you got some good taste there. I like all that stuff you're mentioning. Very good. I like all that. But- I even
3: listened, have you ever heard of Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band? Of course I have. Okay, I got into that. I, I used to dress them, like, the '40s and stuff. I used to wear the pants and everything. It, it was, it was, it was an, it was an extravaganza for me. You yeah, know? it was, yeah. it was awesome.
1: I'm not wearing the pants anymore, but I'm with you on all the other stuff for sure, for sure. Yes, I sure. bet we could, I yes, bet we could yes, merge sure. our record collections. John, thank oh, you. Yes. Good to hear from you. Um, and thanks to everybody that called on this.
4: Heartbeat, it's a love beat.
5: The Franco family.
1: They were like the Jackson Five, only not. Yeah, I knew you would find that, Don. I knew. I said the minute the minute John mentioned the DeFranco family, I said Cooper is going to find that thing. (laughs) Like (laughs) I. I knew, like it was like a KTel uh, commercial, right? It's I always remember that from Wasn't that on one of the KTel <laughs> yes, it was. commercials? Probably on like, every you know.
4: KTel album in uh,
1: fact. I think yeah. I think they were very there big you. on KTel. Yeah, I don't know what that says about them, but they showed up on a lot of KTel. Uh, it's hard to be Our, a foregone con- conclusion. <laughs> <is it? laughs> oh boy. Uh I'm not saying you're predictable, but I knew you would do that. And by the way, awesome job with the edits. Those were really those were really good. I'm they, glad you did that. They were fun and to do. I, that would be that was, that was would be beyond me So thank goodness you're there Uh Thanks to everybody that voted
5: I'm in a quicksand And I'm starting to sing I need someone to help me But I don't know which way to turn I know I don't have much of a choice I'll go out of my mind or into the night On
1: 550 and 1071 KTSA uh, This half hour we'll have the results On our poll questions and, in fact, kind of, in a way, we've kind of had two sets of voting going on today because we have the actual JR poll that we always have that runs all through the show, but we have had so many people weighing in on the music decade that I'm going to tell you which decade won that uh, and how they ranked uh coming up uh, in about eh, like 15 minutes. So I always debate whether or not we should play this or something like this on the air because it's not for everyone, and I acknowledge that, but, man... These guys uh at, at Comedy Central's South Park, just when they aim at something, they don't get close. They hit the bullseye. So they've made one of the kids in the show, Eric Cartman, uh they've decided that he is coming out as trans. Remember we told you the last time we talked about South Park it was because Harry and Megan were offended. Okay, well, th- th- here they are again, and just imagine the meltdowns that are going to ensue. But but again, they're and, right and on target with this depiction of Eric coming out as trans. Take a listen to this.
11: You all pushed me to this! What the hell do you think you're doing? I'm going to the potty. This is the girls' bathroom! All right, I need to tell you something, Wendy. I'm transgender. What? Did you notice the bow? I'm not comfortable with the sex I was assigned at birth, so I'm exercising my right to identify with the gender of my choice. Now get out of my way. I have to take a sh**. Get out of here! Don't give me more issues than I already have, Wendy. Oh, wow, this is nice in here. The girl's bathroom's a lot cleaner than the boy's. What the hell is that? Cartman is using our bathroom. Dude, this is awesome. I should have used the girl's bathroom a long time ago. Hey, I'm going to tell on you. It's okay, Red. I can take a sh** here i'm a dumb chick too i want to know just what makes you think it's okay to go inside the girl's bathroom because i'm transgender i looked it up that means i can use the girl's shitter you are not transgender eric you don't even know what that means i looked it up that means i can use the girl's you are not transgender eric you don't even know what that means yeah huh? it means i live a life of torture and confusion because society sees me as a boy but i'm really a girl All right, well, if you identify yourself as a girl, you must find yourself attracted to boys. Is that right? That's actually not true. I can be transgender without it having anything to do with the gender I'm attracted to. Check the state bylaws. All right, listen, Eric. Erica. Listen, Eric, you must know why we can't have you in the girl's bathroom. All I know is I'm transgender, and you can't make me go to the bathroom with the cis-gingers. With the what?
8: Cisgender. It's the politically correct name for people who aren't transgender. If you identify with the sex you were born with, then you're cis. But then cisgender is just normal. Saying normal is extremely offensive to people who aren't in that group. Trust me, you don't want this hot potato. Just let him use the girls' room.
11: But this isn't a hurting, confused child we're talking about. This is Eric Cartman.
8: Nobody else is going to know that. You better just give him what he wants.
11: So Eric Cartman just has us in some kind of bathroom checkmate?
8: Actually... It's
0: more like a royal flesh.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know it's a cartoon. I know there's real life, and then there's cartoons. I, I'm I, I'm aware of the difference, but but I I I kind of think that's the the nub of the situation right there. I mean, don't you think somewhere in America, maybe with more realistic voices? That's pretty much been the conversation somewhere in a, in a principal's office or a district office or uh, a, a parent teacher meeting or something. That's, that's the gist of it. You have to let me do this. And the schools are saying, you know, we're better off if we just let them. I think that's probably happening. Listen to this. Um, the South Carolina legislature has just passed what they're calling the Yankee tax. I'm not making this up. The Yankee tax applies to all residents moving into South Carolina. When they go to register their vehicle, they will pay twice the price that people already in South Carolina pay. They say they're not doing it to discourage Yankees, but to handle the additional wear and tear on the roads because so many Northerners are moving into South Carolina. The Yankee tax would be extra fees on those moving to the Palmetto State to fund the infrastructure that they are wearing out. So what do you think about a Yankee tax? I mean, I'm I'm obviously I may have to recuse myself here. Um now, is it only is it only for people moving from northern states? I mean, if you move from like North Carolina or Georgia, would you still get the Yankee tax? It's kind of offensive. Um, I mean, I like South Carolina and I'm not picking on them. And I, I, I realize that for all of these states, Texas, Florida, apparently South Carolina, the whole influx of people from blue states is, it, it's a, it's complicated. You're proud of it and you're worried about it, right? You're proud that your state is a destination. Who wouldn't be? But you're worried about it. And we've talked about this a lot on the show. We've we've talked about it with you. We've had guests on. Governor Abbott talked to us about it. He He's of the opinion, he says, that the people coming here from liberal states are not themselves liberal. But I don't think you can count on that. So part of me thinks, hey, we're all Americans. This is ridiculous. And part of me gets it. The Yankee tax. (laughs) That's not the official name of it. That's what everybody's calling it. What do you think about that? 210-599-5555. I wanted to mention this because um, there is a point where politics doesn't matter. There's a point where we're all human beings, and we should be, and we are. And, um, I saw at ktsa.com today the story about, uh, Congressman Joaquin Castro. If you've not seen this, he's fine. He's okay, but he, he is undergoing, um, surgery for some, um, I guess intestinal, uh, growths. And he's thanking the MD Anderson Cancer Center and UT Health Science Center. And, uh, he's got a good prognosis and, uh, he, you know, he's going to be fine. He's going to recover at home for several weeks. We wish him well. We wish him all the best. I don't personally know him. I, I do know Julian Castro a little bit personally from a long time ago. Um, I don't agree with them politically, but I I care about them, and I hope they're okay. I hope he's okay, and I hope they both are. And I know you'll add him to your prayers and your good thoughts. There is a lot of um, real question about this. I, we, we're not talking a lot about it on this show, but there's a lot of questions about this uh, Senator Fetterman from Pennsylvania. You know, last time we talked about him, we told you that he's now in a um, mental health facility to which he was recommended by the physician of the Senate for his depression issues. And basically, if I understand what I'm reading correctly, this is the, remember, this is the candidate who had a stroke when he was running for the Senate um, and had to be, coddled and, and sheltered and handled very carefully during the course of, of last year running and, and ultimately winning that race against Dr. Mehmet Oz. And then he gets to the Senate and immediately takes ill and is in the hospital and then comes out. And then we learn that he has very, very hard time understanding spoken word. And I guess, from what I read, his depression stems from his inability to recover. And so on a personal basis, that that sounds awful. But I have to say, I I think this is one of the most underreported scandals I've ever heard of. Both from the bill of goods that was sold to the people of Pennsylvania to the naked ambition of the people around him. Is there nothing that can happen to a human being that would make you care more about a person than about politics? Is there nothing more important than winning that Senate seat? Is there nothing more important than your husband's well-being? Can the people around John Fetterman be okay with the fact that he is literally coming apart because he is wondering if he will ever be right again? And he may never be right again because he didn't rest and recuperate from his stroke last spring, but instead ran for the Senate. The the question is not about him. The question is about the people that pushed for this, pushed him, protected him, lied about him, and the people who supposedly love him. I I can't wrap my head around it. Uh, The question was, should the Supreme Court uphold or toss President Biden's student loan forgiveness? 98% said toss, 2% said uphold. And then we also asked you tonight about uh, the best decade for music. The third-place decade in all our voting was the 60s. The second-place decade was the 80s. And the winning decade, and it was not even close was the Super 70s. They had it all. And we'll leave you with one right now. See you back here tomorrow at 4 or anytime at KTSA.com.